And we are live. This is Dark Journalist. Uh, it's great to be here with everyone. Of course, I'm joined by the lovely Olivia. Hi, everybody. And we have a very special guest tonight, and that is Dr. Joseph P. Farrell. Joseph, how are you? I'm good, Daniel. Trust in the plan. <laughs> <laughs> Where we go one, we go Fauci, right? Yeah, we go Fauci. Yes. <laughs> I forgot my Fauci goggles. Uh, I, I forgot my nose bag, too. So. <laughs> Unbelievable. Joseph, um, I have to say, we have so many things to get into tonight. Off the top, I want to say you have a new book out, which is called The Tower mm -hmm. of Babel Moment. Mm -hmm. Uh that book, you use a large format on that book. That's because Lulu messed up their website as only Bill Gates can mess up a website. <laughs> and I tried and tried and tried to get this thing into a trade paperback format. And it just wouldn't do it. And I just finally gave up and said, ah, to heck with it. So it came out in this big kind of coffee table format. Fantastic. People actually liked it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know. It looks say fun. what you will, but it's a fun book. It's it's just a book I was planning to do for a long time, and I was sitting around here trusting the plan and you know eating my popcorn, and I decided I might as well take this time and do the fun book I've wanted to do for a while. So I did it. So there it is. And you well, you had just done the series of McCarthy books, right? And uh, those were very heavy duty and they exposed mm -hmm. a lot. And even a Project Blue Book came up in there, as we know, which is, mm -hmm. I think, off the charts. And those books are just starting to sink in with how powerful uh, they are. This book, it's interesting to me because this phrase, you use it, uh, you used it before. I've actually seen you do lectures on the Tower of Babel moment. Mm -hmm. What is the significance of that? Well, that phrase actually is not mine. It comes from uh, Leonard Bernstein's Harvard Norton Poetry Lectures in 1973 called The Unanswered Question. Ah. And there are a series, the lectures are in six parts. You can go on YouTube and watch them, although I recommend people buy the DVDs and have them because they're, I, I watch them at least once a year because they're so thought provoking. But he uses that phrase in the first lecture, and, and the first time I heard it, it just stuck. And I, I tell people about that in, in that uh, Tower of Babel book, that it's actually his phrase. And it, you know, it's so perfect for describing what I think uh, may have been going on in people's heads you know, back in, in the post-war period, that they were worried about precisely another such event happening. So I've kind of picked it up and used it constantly. That's fascinating. And they would be looking at this kind of like other technology zooming around and figuring mm -hmm. out that we weren't alone. Right. And looking at it and saying, ah, going back, hearkening back to this story, you've pointed out the Tower of Babel moment literally and kind of esoterically when you look back. Mm -hmm. But it's a strange story in any case. Oh, it's a very strange story. I mean, it's it's odd just from the biblical point of view because yeah. in 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 the Bible, every time that you have an intervention by God in human affairs, usually the story gives you some sort of moral reason for the intervention. The Tower of Babel is unique in that in that sense because there's no reason given for the intervention, except if you read the story, it says if they finish this thing, they'll be able to do whatever they imagine to do. They won't be restrained from doing it. 
guys. Yes. And that's the reason for the intervention. It's like, okay, so somebody's afraid of this project being completed because these hairless monkeys are going to, you know, mess up the cosmos somehow with right. it. <laughs> and, you know, so we got to go down there and stop them. And the way, you know, the way it stopped is asymmetrical warfare. You, you interfere with the communications so that the people involved in the project aren't able to finish it. You know, it's kind of like that wonderful scene in, in uh, Lewis's, C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength, where you have this DARPA-like organization that all of a sudden gets you know, there's a there's kind of a magician figure in the story that casts the Babel spell, and the, they start babbling all this nonsense, right. and no one can understand each other, <laughs> so the whole project falls apart. Right. So you know, it's 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 classic asymmetrical warfare, interfere with interdict and interfere with communications. And, you know, it's a very strange story when you stop and think about it. It is. They're building a tower to the sky, and suddenly the gods show up. And they're no longer just one god, they are gods plural, and they reason among themselves. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's like us go down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we got a different group operating all we've got somebody going on there <laughs> that doesn't doesn't fit in too well with the narrative of monotheism, but <laughs> but anyway, you know, it's a it's a strange story. And the book, um, I go into all of the pseudepigraphal traditions about the Tower of Babel, because there's a lot of them. Uh, Sibylline oracles, uh, it's talked about in Enoch, it's talked about in the Book of Jubilees, then you've got, of course, versions of, of the story that are not, you know, that are not even from that tradition. You've got the Sumerian Babylonian version, you've even got hints of it in, in the Mayan Popol Vuh, you know, so there's all of these traditions about it, and when you start reading these traditions, that's where it really gets interesting. Yeah, because it's clear, and and from my point of view, you know, these traditions, I, I take them as as containing some sort of um, kernel of truth. Well, when you read some of these things, particularly the Book of Jubilees, it's very clear that they're talking about some sort of physics was involved with the project because they talk about the thickness of heaven and trying to bore into it and discover what it's made out of and so on and so forth. it's very weird weird stuff wow. and all of that in in traditions associated with the original biblical story so i'm thinking well where is this coming from right right <laughs> so i i you know i think there were uh bits and pieces of this story that were fragmented and then handed down and finally recorded. But, you know, it's a fun book. Really yeah, fun. yeah, it sounds fantastic. Uh, I Actually, when I think about the 20th century version of you bringing that in, it makes really a lot of sense because when you think about the mentality, and we're looking at this a lot now because you have groups like the Navy and the CIA pushing this whole UFO narrative and the UFO threat narrative. Um, and the fact that they want to push that so badly, and I've got articles here. Um, this is the front of the New York Times now, Joseph. No longer in shadows, Pentagon's UFO unit will make some findings public. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't wait for that. Um, and we all know how they rolled this out through TTSA and all these various things. Mm -hmm. My question is, though, now, in the middle of the whole COVID op and all these <laughs> things. 
Now they want to talk about UFOs. UFOs. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So they're positioning now. This is a backup op, or this is part of the whole thing. I think it's part of the whole thing. But to me, Daniel, the problem is, and, and I think we discussed this privately, the problem I'm having is an epistemological one. Right. Because let's let's just look at, at the federal government's track record here. The first thing they sold us was a magic bullet, okay? And on and on, this is gone. And then they sold us Waco, which was to protect the children. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they've lied so many times. Then came 9-11 and, and that whole fracas. And now we've got the Fauci, Wuhan, Lieber, Bail Gates, you know, coronavirus narrative where the science flip-flops every day depending on what sort of political agenda they want to accomplish. I, I call it the magic virus. I mean, yeah. it's it, it, it can infect people at Trump rallies, but not protests, and churches, but not casinos. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's a magic virus. It does whatever you want it to do. Yes, exactly. You know. And I'm not saying that people aren't dying from this thing. That's oh, yeah? not what I'm saying. But I am saying that the narrative is so out of proportion and so self-contradictory. I mean, you know, we've got doctors being censored because they come out and contest the idea that, that these ridiculous nose bags are going to protect us from the virus uh, and complicate our health in other ways, you yeah. know. Um, the whole narrative is so bad. So my problem is epistemological. How... I'm wondering, do, does anyone who's been following all of this trust the government when it all of a sudden says, oh, we've got a special UFO study group? Well, they've had special UFO study groups since Blue Book. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and if you've, if you, yeah, yeah, you know, this, this has been going on for a long time, that the government is now coming out and saying, oh, yeah, we've got this. To me, I'm like, big deal. So what? Mm -hmm. You know, where are you getting these so-called videos? Are they vetted properly to make sure that they haven't been faked? Uh, are we really looking at an extraterrestrial technology? You know, because like like we've talked about so many times, that's a heck of a lot of money that went missing over several decades. And and yeah. in my opinion, twenty-one trillion. Yeah. Well, that's just what we know about. You yeah. know. Um, I, I really think this thing started after World War II, and the amounts of money are so astronomical that the only thing I can think of that would be an explanation for it is exotic and very expensive technolog technological research. Wow. So, you know, if the government comes out tomorrow and says E.T. is here and we're talking with him or her or it or whatever, um, Am I going to believe it? No, because I'm I'm too skeptical and jaundiced at this point. They're going to have to they're going to have to offer some pretty irrefutable stuff right. if they're going to make this stick. And you know they can't even get the narrative on the virus right. So I'm right. You know, I'm not I'm not holding I'm not holding my breath. You know for whatever they might come out and say about ET. Um, and if you know, I'm of the opinion that if the if the government's saying ET is a threat, then it probably isn't. And if it says they aren't, it probably is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the opposite rule. Uh, it's the opposite rule. Yes. I know. I know it's going to change your mind though, because this upstanding citizen got behind it, and he's the Florida senator. His name is Marco Rubio. 
<laughs> you know, Joseph Rubio says UFOs, they're a threat. They're a threat. Uh huh. Well, so, yeah. Um, again, forgetting about his neocon background for a second. <laughs> well, look, my problem is the Rubio bubble bath. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 all of that stuff about his background that makes me wonder yeah. just how he got elected. Because that little bubble bath episode, to me, uh, that's that to me that's just a control file. It's an indicator yeah. that there might be something more there than meets the eye, and that they've got him and, you know, he's going to put out whatever narrative that, that they want him to put out. So again, I'm very, I, I'm dubious about Dubio Rubio. Let, let Dubio. <laughs> well, that's what I've called him ever since he appeared on the stage. You can, you can go back and listen to George Ann Hughes and the bite show. And I, I was calling him that. Then. <laughs> but um, you know he ran for president. I went yeah, back. I know he ran for president. And, <laughs> was quickly ushered off the stage by Mr. Trump. You know, that was that was during the that those Republican primary meltdowns <laughs> that he was that he was serving. Jeb, yes. Oh, the the nine eleven comment to me is still a classic. <laughs> Just left Jeb speechless. That know. was the end of Jeb, actually. Yeah. Well yes, and you know, and his statement about Senator Cruz and his father, and now all of a sudden, Cruz is really on board. You know, <laughs> it makes you wonder. You know, dropping. I, I, yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. So Rubio, you know, he can say whatever he wants to, but again, he's putting this out without any argument, without any demonstration that ET may be a threat. Okay. Right. Now, I happen to think it's very possible because you can't read any of that ancient stuff and come away with the idea that these are our friendly space brothers. Yes. But um, by the same token, you've got you've got other stories that indicate, well, they're not entirely hostile either. So, mm -hmm. you know, give us something, Senator Rubio, for why you're saying this. Give us a reason. Well, let's look at a likely scenario. I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying there. They haven't produced anything. As a matter of fact, the videos they released came out on YouTube in 2007 originally. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. You know, what's the, what's this big release business? I mean, you know, I forget what the guy's name was that used to have uh, the night vision goggles. Yes. Where, you know, he was seeing all sorts of stuff in the sky and told other people, and they're looking up there, oh, yeah, look at that. Isn't that interesting? And, you know, this has been going on, and the government's finally saying, yeah, there's stuff up there. Oh, really? You know, we've seen the space shuttle videos, STS-48 with the space shuttle Discovery, STS-81 with the space shuttle Atlantis, and all those funny little things. That that's were, the real stuff. Yeah. yeah, that's the real stuff right there. I mean, come on. That's a lot better than the Tic Tac, shall we say. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is being treated as news by by the prop attainment media and, and, you know, it's like, okay, where have you guys been for the last 50 years? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, not real about this. Yeah, it is. And every time I see that Mellon, Christopher Mellon's involved of the Mellon banker family with all their billions and all the rest, and that he worked for W and all that, mm -hmm. you know, he works directly. He's part of the board of TTSA. And he always shows up in those New York Times articles. Mm -hmm. um, so that and that whole group of TTSA, they have over a hundred years of CIA experience on their board. So we know where this story is coming from. With those, sure. yeah, it's yeah. part of their op. Um, what I do find interesting 
and I'm going straight from this article here. Um, U.S. Navy UFO Task Force exists, and Rubio wants to know its data on aerial phenomena threats. This is getting interesting to me because um, it seems to me that even if they're sort of been watching for years the UFO thing, they don't quite know what they're dealing with, let's say. They want to create their own version that will serve their purposes. That's where right. the UFO threat comes from. That's where this whole let's accept UFOs because it was the top search on Google in 2018. They were probably like, there's no way around it anyway. Right. Right. Well, I do think you're right that there's an aspect of, of prepping a narrative here. Yeah. That, that you know, we're, we're seeing narratives being prepped all over the place. You know, the election is going to be a fraud and this or that yeah. party is going to contest it. Uh, they're prepping so many things ahead of time, and I think this is one aspect of it. And, again, I would not put it past them to try and stage something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a kind of inter interplanetary false flag op, because these people are desperate to have their global government. And really, at this stage, climate change hasn't worked out for them. Yeah, uh, you know this global pandemic. When you run the numbers, certainly isn't anywhere close to a pandemic. Yeah, right. And and you know they need something to to stampede people in into this this globalist dream that they've had for you know at least a couple of centuries. So um, who knows? That may work, but at this point. I, again, I think there's too many people, Daniel, that have this epistemological problem with what they see. So they're going to they're gonna have to resort to a concerted media campaign. And, you know, my other problem is considering the sources, you know, uh, most of the mainstream media has, has revealed itself as terribly partisan and with an agenda. So who's going to trust them? you know, if they come out and talk about all of this stuff. Right. And the other thing that is, is weird to me, Daniel, and this is why I think there's a bit of narrative preparation, is that conference or that interview, whatever you want to, weird thing that, that uh, Trump's son did with his father. Oh, yeah. And, you know, his son came right out and asked him, well, what do you know about ETs or Roswell or something? I don't remember what the exact question was, but it was right there in the interview. Yeah. And Trump's response was, well, I know a lot of things about it, but I can't talk about it. Yeah. And, okay, well, what do you know? You know, and where is it coming from? Mm -hmm. Is this part of your UFO briefing that you get, you know, from the intelligence services? Or is this coming via your uncle and the original swamp creature, Roy Cohn, you right. know? <laughs> so, and if it's, if anyone even it's suspects... It's probably the latter. I, I am thinking, yeah, I'm thinking, yeah. yeah, it's probably all of that association that he had with Nixon and, and Roy Cohn and, you know, that whole, that whole ilk. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, in Cone's case, Cone would have been in the perfect position, going back to the McCarthy books, Cone would have been in the perfect position to know exactly what was in those transcripts because he was there right. in those Monmouth hearings. And he was the one, besides McCarthy, that did most of the heavy questioning right. in those hearings. And if anyone would be in a position to tell Donald Trump there's a heck of a lot more going on than meets the eye, it would be Roy Cone. <laughs> So, you know, Trump lets this out, and again, you know, is is he sending messages 
that he knows something and he does he's sending a message that to the to the uh, ET threat people don't go there mm -hmm. because I can blow it out of the water or you right. know what's what's the message he's sending but he is sending a message yeah. you know that that question to occur in that interview had to you know had to have been planned it was not accidental all right they're not going to do anything spontaneous about it no 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 not <laughs> at all not at all and and i'll tell you what makes me think it was planned is the very fact that it's his son doing the interview right they wanted to make sure to get that on the record yes so we're not trusting bill o'reilly or sean hannity or anybody else it's his son yeah yeah, yeah exactly and this really goes in with a lot of the things that we've talked about about Trump's uncle, because yeah. John Trump, being at MIT, he had Vannevar Bush as his right. mentor. Vannevar right. Bush ran the UFO file. I mean, oh, he, absolutely, yeah. Well, Vannevar Bush ran every. You know, he was yes. he was the Hans Kammler of American black projects. I mean, <laughs> yes. he had his fingers into every little black project that was going on during the Second World War, and I'm quite convinced for for a long period of time afterward. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, Trump has Trump has some interesting independent sources right. that no other president coming in to office really had, with maybe the exception of, of John Kennedy, you know, with that whole Kennedy-McCarthy uh, connection. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, it's interesting that these are the two presidents that had that kind of independent ability to to vet what the government agencies may have been telling them. Right. So you know, I'm I'm intensely suspicious at this point of of this whole UFO narrative that's coming out. No question, uh, everyone. You're watching the Dark Journalist Show. We're here in X Series 93 with Dr. Joseph Farrell. He's got a new book. Out. It is called the Tower of Babel moment, and this is fascinating stuff. Uh, Joseph, I've been going through two books. One of the books that's interesting, you just mentioned Kamler. Uh, there's a book that came out uh, called The Hidden Nazi, mm -hmm. which is about Kamler mm -hmm. and had some details in there. Mm -hmm. but what I found so fascinating in looking at it, and it, it has come out in the last year or so, mm -hmm. the work that you've tracked about Kamler, really, it mirrors a lot of that. And mm -hmm. you've, been, you've been doing this over a decade. But um, one of the things that's so fascinating to me is a Kamler who was in charge of these kind of exotic projects would have been in charge of the Bell Project mm -hmm. yes. in Nazi Germany, as you pointed out. Um, in that book, they talk about as the war fortunes turn against Hitler, Kamler more and more has to try to either ship this stuff out mm -hmm. to save it or mm -hmm. pretend that he's destroying it, mm -hmm. whatever it happens to be. And it is in that sort of mire web of history that the bell disappears into. Mm -hmm. um, so for people who don't know, can you tell them what the bell is and what might have happened to it? Well, the bell is allegedly a super secret project in Nazi Germany. It was first uh, thoroughly researched by a Polish researcher by the name of Igor Witkowski. And all researchers, myself included, Nick Cook, uh, anybody who's talked about the bell is at some point reliant on Igor Vitkovsky. Uh, Igor's book was called The Truth About the Wunderwaffe. It's a good book if you can find it. 
Uh, there is a Polish edition, uh, but the English edition is very hard to come by. Fortunately, I was able to get a copy years and years ago. But uh, the Bell Project, the way I've attempted to to reconstruct it based on Igor's research and some additional material that I've outlined in the book, was, to my mind, Nazi Germany's attempt to find an energy source or physics that would allow them to do three things. The first would be so-called free energy or zero-point energy. The second would be uh, for the purposes of, of anti-gravity, which allegedly the Bell demonstrated some of those properties by levitating when it was mm -hmm. in operation. But that's all it did. It just levitated. It didn't buzz around like UFOs or anything like that. Right. Uh, because it had to be cabled to the ground for, for uh, immense electrical power, so it wasn't it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a functioning or deployable or operable device for, in a military sense. But the, I do think the third thing that they were wanting was that if you can if you can find an energy source of that nature then if you weaponize it, and I've said this many times, if you weaponize that energy source, you've got something that would make a hydrogen bomb look like a firecracker. So, you know, this, this, these are the three aims, I think, of the Bell Project. Um, there are people that dispute it, uh, but I do think that Igor laid out such a, a detailed case that it's possible to go into that case and look at the details that he lays out and kind of reverse engineer the the physical physics concepts that the Germans were thinking of when when they deployed this device. So once you do that, then you can go out and look for confirmations in the scientific literature of the period. And I think it's very clear that this this is what they were up to. That's the case I've tried to lay out in several books. Do you think that the bell uh, represents torsion physics? Yeah. 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 Because it was the, the the device that Igor describes is is a typical plasma trap, but with the significant exception, a plasma trap is is basically a, a, an electromagnetic device that creates a plasma and like a tokamak fusion reactor that holds the plasma in in an intense electromagnetic field. But what the Nazis did was they started rotating that field and even even set it up with mechanical rotation of the plasma inducing fuel in the structure and then they were pulsing it in my opinion uh, with gobs of, of uh, direct current electricity and the reason I say that is one significant little detail that Igor mentions that the Germans nicknamed the bell Der Bienenstock, the beehive so it made a, it made a harsh buzzing sound when it was in operation. And to me, that's a signature of the sound of an electromagnetic switch being opened and closed extremely fast so that it can pulse with all that direct current electricity. So uh, it's little details like that and trying to reverse engineer them that I, that I get up to in my books that talk about the bell. And the, the case that I make is circumstantial. People have to understand that. But it's a very, very detailed circumstantial case that, to my mind, when you add it all up, it's very clear that the Nazis were up to something on that on that line. 
And to add to that story, you know, I, I talk about uh, Dr. Ronald Richter down in Argentina doing his very weird right. <laughs> fusion experiments yeah. where, where he talks about, you know, rotating the plasma, pulsing it with, with gobs of electricity, which I'm assuming were direct currency electricity and so on. So right. in other words, I think there was a yeah. continuation of that project absolutely. in Argentina. Right, absolutely. Where did he get that knowledge? Right. It's interesting, too, because um, on the record, the bell disappears. Right. You pointed out that we didn't know about it in society until 1990 um, when the two Germanys Right. And we had right. one, uh, you know, that whole thing happen. Now that's pretty significant because it's a big missing chapter. Oh, huge. Yeah, for 45 some odd years. Right. Um, right. So it's, it's overwhelming that something happened to the bell. You know, the idea that they would have destroyed it, backtracking through Commodore stuff doesn't make sense. It seems like they no. got it out of there. Yeah, I think they got it out of there. But even, even if they did destroy it, when you, when, when you look at, at Ronald Richter's work in Argentina, which is just very weird, uh, it's very clear that the same concepts are involved in what he was up to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they may have shipped the bell someplace else and decided to have several different centers researching it. It may have been destroyed. I don't know. I personally think that they got the dang thing out of there mm -hmm. because it wasn't that big of a device. It was perfectly capable of being put in one of those large long-range uh, transport aircraft that the Germans had at the time. So um, Kammler, I do think, yes, is is uh, a crucial figure here. But, you know, you, you mentioned the German reunification. This is the other thing that people have to get their wrap their heads around. Virtually everything that is now being talked about with the Nazi secret weapons programs from A-bombs to death rays to the bell, you know, all of this exotic weird stuff that they were doing. Most of that has come out since the German reunification, including that very significant document that it looks, the Zinser affidavit, that it looks very definitely like there was some sort of German A-bomb test in October of 1944. Mm -hmm. That was not declassified until 1992 by the Clinton administration. And it's, you know, I read that thing and I thought, oh, my God, you know, what he's describing is is the effect of a nuclear blast. And he's describing it before the details of, of a nuclear blast are publicly well known. Mm. And that's, you know, that's that's the fly in the ointment. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all sorts of stuff. And, and the German reunification is basically what's kicked all of this loose. It, you know, Igor Witkowski was able to go in and examine the Polish war crimes trials records and find this affidavit describing the bell. Um, and again, people have to understand, we do not have access to that transcript. Wow. But it's the details that Witkowski recounts that are the crucial thing. So you can go and look at these details and reconstruct or kind of reverse engineer what they were up to. That's the argument that I was making in my books. People have to understand that. Right. Well, uh, your the details you've laid out about the bell in your books, it, it really, you know, gets us down that road because we know there's missing technology oh, yeah. uh, from the Nazi period. And we also know that they were operating on a very 
advanced level. You've pointed out oh, yeah. that they basically had cell phones and television and all kinds of things that we didn't get till much later. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the Berlin Olympics was um, televised inside of that? Nazi Germany. That's 1936. Wow, incredible. On television, you know, turn yeah. on your television and there's <laughs> Dolph at in the box in the Olympics, you know, that that's literally what was going on. And, you know, they Nazi Germany did have uh, broadcast type theaters with television sets in them all mm -hmm. over Berlin. You could go watch the news. Wow. You know, they were expensive equipment at the time, but you could actually go to these television theaters and watch the news. You know, imagine turning it on. There's Dolph, you know, giving you the daily news. Um, <laughs> and, and that technology, incidentally, came from America, Philo Farnsworth. Right. You know, who developed television. He sold a lot of his patents to the Nazis, went over to Germany and helped them develop all of this stuff. And then during the war, the, the Germans were able, successful, in miniaturizing a television camera into something about the size of a shoebox. Wow. Yeah. Now, stop and think about that. Uh, that means they were very advanced in, in vacuum tubes, how to miniaturize them. I, I believe that they had primitive silicon chips, very primitive, but nevertheless that they were working on something very close to a semiconductor. Uh, so, yeah, there's this explosion of technology inside of Nazi Germany, and I think that it's largely because they were willing to think entirely outside the box. And, you know, Kamler, that was his specialty. Um, that's what he set up his think tank to do. It was a DARPA. It was a DARPA. He's another Nazi who has multiple death stories. Oh, yeah. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Four, count them, four different deaths. Wow. You know, um, which makes me think that, again, they're putting out such obfuscated confusion you know they did that with hitler's death they did that with martin borman's death right. and here's hans and they did it with gestapo miller and right. they did it with hans kamler so in other words the way i'm looking at it you're looking at a huge disinformation operation to create such confusion in the narrative that these people are able to get out and escape exactly and i i think that's exactly what happened to kamler and the target for where they're going Argentina. Well, in in that new book that you referred to that came out about Kamler, they're arguing that he came to this country. Yes. Uh, and he may have, you know, I, that's what Igor Vitkovsky thinks. That's what Nick Cook thinks. I think that he probably went to Argentina because when you examine, and this is the problem in, in historiography of this period, most people are concentrating on the United States and they're forgetting all about Argentina. Yeah. And the Argentines are very clear, you know, the, there are Argentines that Jeffrey um, Cook, I think is his name, talks about that saw a Junkers 390, which is an enormous <laughs> aircraft, even by today's standards, landing in Argentina. So, you know, yeah, my thinking is, yeah, he probably, he, he was probably doing the Kamler thing. He was probably playing all sides against the middle. He may have had contact with the Americans, probably had contact with uh, the Argentines. You know, this, this was another piece of work. And, you know, I think, I think you can make a case for both places. Well, it's interesting. Uh, and I'll, I'll mention the book that we're talking about by Reuter here, Dean Reuter.
mm -hmm. uh, along with Calm Lowry and Keith Jester. It's the Hidden Nazi is this right. book we're referencing. It's so interesting to me how much, as I was reading this book, I was thinking about your books because uh, for some reason when I was reading this, all these details started to come out and I was like, you know, this really is bringing me back to a couple of books that you wrote. But one of the things that's in here that I think is fascinating since they think you came to America is that in the case of Von Braun and Dornberger, we know mm -hmm. that they did. And right. what they're saying in here is that they made a deal with GE sometime around December 44 to come here, even before the war was lost. Mm -hmm. so, and what, what's the company involved in the construction of the bell? It's Germany's General Electric, Allgemeine Elektricitätsgemeinschaft. Uh, so yeah, uh, so you know, there's another little, there's another little dot yes. that connects all of this. So yeah, uh, I think you're. I think at least as far as America is concerned, when you're when you're dealing with Operation Paperclip, what you're doing is you're setting up the infrastructure for a vast post-war secret projects uh, type of research. Mm -hmm. And that's why they're so hot to get their hands on all these people and, and bring them to this country, or at least tie them to this country somehow. Right. And we understand about Operation Paperclip, but there's more that we don't know anything about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the, problem, the problem with Paperclip, particularly when you deal with people like Kurt Davis, uh, what most people don't realize, and I, again, I find this more than coincidental, is that after the Roswell incident, and you look at the Magic 12 documents, and supposedly they bring in a bunch of these Nazis to look at the Roswell wreckage. Supposedly. I mean, that's what, that's what the Magic 12 documents say. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm inclined, I'm inclined to think that, that that probably happened, because who else are you going to turn to that yeah. would have any sort of expertise in advanced aerodynes? It was after that incident that Kurt Davis, one of these Nazis brought over under paperclip, was charged again by somebody in U.S. Army counterintelligence, and they reopened his security file, the U.S. Army did, to re-vet him because they had learned that Davis had denounced a fellow worker to the Gestapo in 1942. Now, Davis, in case people don't know who he is, Kurt Davis is one of these people that hovers between the Bell Project inside of Nazi Germany and, and what I call the Public Secret Weapons Project, which are the rockets. Okay, right. He's involved in both. So he's part of Von Braun's team. And it's Davis that developed the test measuring equipment for Von Braun at Peenemann and the rockets. The key thing here is that Davis is not a rocket scientist. He's a plasma scientist. Ah. And he's involved intimately with the AEG company in Germany with the Bell Project. And I think because of that, you know, going on to my speculation that the Apollo program struck some sort of deal with the Nazis to get their hands on some of that technology to get us to the moon and back. Davis ends up as the senior flight administrator for Project Apollo at Cape Canaveral. So in other words, you have a plasma physicist, yeah, not a rocket scientist, a plasma physicist running 
the day-to-day operation of Project Apollo. A Nazi. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's cast against type, if I ever heard it. Uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, precisely. I think um, it's interesting. I have a shot here just to bring that home. That's interesting to me, too, because Davis and Von Braun become the public face of that launch. But Davis is the one who is out of place there. Davis is entirely out of place. And incidentally... He ends up, by the end of his career, just before he retires from NASA, he ends up in charge of NASA's UFO files. Right. Davis, a Nazi, <laughs> in, in charge of this country's you know, NASA agency UFO files. And then when he finally retires from NASA, guess where you find him? You right. find him on the board of OTRAG. OTRAG, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> O-T-R-R-A-G. Mm-hmm. Wow. Orb- Orbital Transport Raketen Aktionsgesellschaft is what it stands for in German. Otrag. And where where were these guys? <laughs> well, listen, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't really know a thing about Otrag unless, uh, thank you, uh, big thank you to Mikhail Gorbachev. Right. Because Gorbachev is the one, just you know, as the Soviet Union's in its death throes, that that. Made this whole yeah yeah Gorbachev brought it out. He's the guy that brought everybody's attention. That hey, by the way, did you know that West Germany has its own Area Fifty One in the Congo? (laughs) (laughs) And they're up to all sorts of nasty stuff, including viruses, biological warfare, cruise missiles. (laughs) And he just lays it all out there. (laughs) And found a picture of uh, one of the. What are they launching? Oh, yeah, uh, what is that? It doesn't look. <laughs> it doesn't look like any sort of rocket I've ever seen. It looks like an Egyptian monument or something. Yeah, yeah, it looks like an. Yeah. If you yeah. look at the top here, actually, it's interesting because they have the OTRAG right on the top there. Mm-hmm. Um, who's involved in OTRAG? Okay, OTRAG was a private company set up in in West Germany in the eighties to develop cheap, reusable, note the word, reusable, and where's Elon Musk from? Reusable (laughs) rocket technology to launch satellites cheaply. Right. Okay, that's the public story. And Gorbachev comes along and blows the lid off of all of it because what he's saying is that OTRAG was the way that the United States was transferring advanced technologies secretly to West Germany, cruise missile technology, and then we get the biowarfare. Who knows where that's coming from? Yeah. But there was this preserve inside of the Congo of about 250,000, I believe I've seen one report, square miles. In you know, this that's is huge. this is huge, you know, inside of inside of the Congo, which was Otrog's private preserve. It was it was the West German Area 51. And, you know, this is typical German behavior. You know, if they want to get their hands on a technology or uh, experiment or do research in a technology that by treaty they are prohibited from doing on German soil. 
Right. So, you know, the Germans, they ship it all to Africa or just across the border into Holland. You know, (laughs) this is the way they've gotten around it. You know, they've been up to this stuff since the ink was drying on the Treaty of Versailles. You know, we'll ship out all of our secret research to the Soviet Union or wherever, Mm -hmm. and we'll do it that way. (laughs) Right, right. So you know it's typical. It's 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 typical of the German pattern of of dealing with treaty obligations. They just ship it overseas, and they privatize it. So Otrog, you know, as far as I know, was in existence from about 1983 up until uh, 1991, sometime in there, uh, mm-hmm. and then it was officially shut down. I have my suspicions. Like I say, where is Elon Musk getting all of his technology from? Right. How did that just start up? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And he's and he is German. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I hate to point that out. You know, I'm not trying to pick on the Germans here, but it's just another little factoid to to factor in. But are you telling it like it is? Well, uh-huh. this is interesting because we don't really understand the roots of SpaceX. No, we really don't. We really don't. And I, I think you're looking at Otrog 2.0. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the mystery around this company, it's so very interesting to me when you look at it because um, you can get away with a lot in Africa. Right. There's not a lot of oversight. I mean, there's probably more no. oversight in the desert in Nevada than yep. there is in the middle of the Congo in Africa. Yeah. Uh, yep. So if you're going to test out, if you've kept Bell-type technology, that's a pretty good place to test it. Oh, yeah. You could do it in Africa. You can do it in the boonies of Argentina. Uh, there's all sorts of places you could do it. Um, you know, I've I've tried to get people to understand that this this Nazi international thing that I've been talking about is not a bunch of swastika armband wearing guys goose stepping around and celebrating Hitler's birthday. These these are the Martin Bormans. These are the guys in the business suits, mm-hmm. but they're still every bit as fascist as as they ever were. Uh, and you know. To, to Bormann's quote-unquote credit, I think that what he did uh, setting this whole thing up is he just simply took all of that uh, kooky Nazi racial ideology and just threw it right out and said, you know, we're going to get down to business here. Right. Um, and that's what I think you're looking at. So you're looking at a kind of a global consortium with a little public fronts popping up here and there uh, wow. that, have, that have, you know, yeah. like Elon Musk, have suspicious unanswered questions yeah how how did this all of a sudden come out of nowhere where did the technology come from who was involved and what are the ties of those involved you know what are their histories who are they connected with no one's talking about it and you know i haven't found any information on it It's, it's like a black box yeah and he makes a lot of very unusual comments like Uh ours uh-huh uh, there's a big Mars fascination around what they're doing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. This is very interesting to me. Also, when I look at this and I think about all the things that are coming out around the UFO file on, uh, you know, just going through the mainstream media, and they're mm-hmm. saying, well, it's not necessarily alien, but we don't think it's Russia or China. Well, what's left? <laughs> well, not much. <laughs> Is it the French, you know? (laughs) And and listen, I'm not ruling France out because in in prior to our uh, public launch, we were talking about Thomas Townsend Brown. 
Yes. You know, the famous American physicist who was all about electrogravity. Okay. Right. That was his bag. Well, in, in, I think 1952 or three, somewhere around there, as, as he's already established a reputation for investigating electrogravitic lift and propulsion. France invited, because he was getting nowhere with the United States, France invited him over to France. Ah. To, he went. This is what most people don't uh, know about him. He actually went to France. And France created a vacuum chamber for him to do his experiments in to establish whether or not it was simply an ion wind that was creating the lift, as many people were claiming. So he performed his experiments in France for the French government and successfully demonstrated that his lift would still work in vacuum. Mm. And then at that point, President de Gaulle said, thank you very much. Back to the States you go. <laughs> <laughs> they and, got some kind of confirmation. Yeah, they got the confirmation. So there is another country you can put on your list for probably having more up its sleeve than it's letting people know. <laughs> okay. Wow. This yeah. is so fascinating because I had no idea about any of that. But today I've been reading all about the French Space Force. Uh-huh. And setting up this woman to run just that. I have the article here. I was going to read it for you. This is interesting to me because French having a space force seems a little odd. You'd think they would be back in the pack a little bit. No. Yeah. No. no. Uh, the, the European uh, launch vehicle is largely a French design. Okay. Okay. Uh, with some German involvement, obviously, but it's largely a French design. So, in other words, the European Space Agency is running its public program with French technology. And all of those launches are carried out where? In French Guiana. Mm -hmm. So, you know, France, France, like it or not, as a player, they're just, you know, they're being typically French about it and not talking very much about right. it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, uh, the the fact that you have the fact that you and I even talk about other French secret weapons research in my very first book Giza Death Star believe it or not because they were investigating just like the Nazis they were investigating any avenue to create uh, a weapons technology that was not nuclear but was uh, of st sufficient strategic value that they would be able to create a deterrent to the Warsaw Pact you know they were investigating infrasound for example, mm -hmm. and actually had created some infrasonic weapons in the 1950s, both portable and really big stuff. A uh, fellow by the French scientist by the name of Gavreau led that, uh, led that development. And this is right at the time, incidentally, that de Gaulle is starting, you know, the French nuclear program and inviting Thomas Townsend Brown to come over and run his experiments in a vacuum chamber. So, you know, the French are up to their earlobes, in this stuff. They just don't talk about it. Wow, incredible. Um, everyone, you're watching the Dark Journalist Show. You're on X-Series 93 here. This is the Deep State Space Wars that we're talking about with Dr. Joseph Farrell. Uh, we're going to be taking questions in the second half of the program, so ask them uh, and ask them all in caps. Miss Olivia's putting those together. Uh, how's it going out there? Great questions already. Yeah, fantastic. You got one? Um, well, <laughs> You want to say? Are, I'll say <laughs> right okay, now. Excellent. Uh, I have so many things to go through. So I, do, I do want. I want to throw this yes. one out. Um, and Cognizant, the initials GE 
were uh -huh. on the craft of George Adamski's famous flying saucer. Oh, which really? I thought was fascinating. Well, we know Adamski was. Uh, <laughs> this is very interesting because they allowed him into all kinds of defense installations. Mm -hmm. And uh, he came up with the whole, you know, Venusian stories landing in the California desert. And uh, they mixed it with a lot of kind of theosophy. Mm -hmm. So you get this kind of theosophical, we're here to help you thing. And mm -hmm. they look very Pleiadian, the mm -hmm. aliens that he meets. But he does seem to have at that time an awful lot of footage of something back there. And then right. later, you know, he's he's denounced as a fraud and all the rest. But he actually was laid to rest on military grounds. Um, so we have somebody who's kind of a big player in there. Yeah, I've 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 been eternally suspicious of his connections with the U.S. military mm -hmm. and the story and the stories that he was putting out. Yes. Um, he the interesting thing about. Adamski, and I talk about him in, in Saucers, Swastikas, and Psyops. I devote a whole chapter to That's him. a great book. It's, it's an overlooked book, unfortunately, but it, but it's an important book. But um, It's I've a foundational book, really. It's I a think. foundational book yeah. because, because you look at the message that Adamski is putting out, and it's like reading the book of Exodus with extraterrestrials. I have to go over the hill. You guys stay here, and I'm going to talk with my Venusian. You know, oh, that's Mount Sinai. Yeah. Uh, so he's got this message. He's got this revelation that he's been entrusted to. So that looks to me like classic psyops. Exactly the sort of thing that if you were in the national security establishment and suspecting that you might be facing, you know, a Tower of Babel moment, well, you're going to go back and you're going to examine ancient texts and so on from that point of view. So I view that as a bit of narrative prep, even even as early as Adamski. Wow. That's fascinating because um, I think Adamski, his story had the most impact in that period. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a few other people like him. Um, <laughs> George Van Tassel and people Van like Tassel. that. Yeah, uh, he created the Integratron, mm -hmm. and he seemed totally legitimate. Mm -hmm. and he, he had worked with Howard Hughes, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so he had the background. Mm -hmm. um, these people are getting flown around in these advanced craft, and they're getting told, oh, we're, we're looking in on you. We don't want you to have a nuclear war. Mm -hmm. That's the message. Uh, but it's interesting when you look at it with Adamski because that story really becomes – this core thing. It's almost like that's what built the early UFO story. Oh yeah, absolutely. There, 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 in my opinion, there wouldn't be a, 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 a ufology community really without Adamski because, you know, if you look at his career, he had access to the talk show, radio talk shows of the day, you know, think of Long John Nabel and people like this right. or Paris Flamand, you know, all of these people that were on the radio, in the media and, and willing to talk about the subject of UFOs. And he was one of the few people that, that had that kind of access. So the message was getting put out there. And again, I think, I think the message was, was largely one of narrative preparation. So, um, I'm not surprised that he had those military connections. Uh, I'm not surprised at all. And, and I think you could even argue a case that maybe he was a front for a narrative that the military wanted, wanted to put out. But it's interesting that you mentioned that part of his narrative, and, and you're right, was, was the threat of nuclear warfare. 
Yes. Because what do you see in so much UFO activity? Well, they hover, and literally, around nuclear sites constantly well, in this country in the soviet union anybody who's anybody who's got a, a you know a nuclear pop gun these things show up and and do monitoring activity and do fun things like turn on and off flights of icbms and reprogram the targeting inside them and you know, all, all sorts all sorts of fun stuff so yeah i mean it's incredible when you think about it because they have the ability, we've seen that in the case of like Bentwaters was another one of these nuclear bases yep. where they showed up. Um, I recently did a documentary called UFO Assassins, and that has in it the story of the Pascagoula aliens. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. goes into how Lytton Industries was operating a huge nuclear facility right there. Mm -hmm. And even after those guys got abducted three weeks later, there's a huge underwater UFO story that happens right there. Yep. So there they are again, checking out the nuclear facilities. Mm -hmm. Well, this brings us back to Thomas Townsend Brown, because when Brown returned from France, he published a, a research project proposal that he submitted to the U.S. government called Project Winterhaven. You can actually go online and look this thing up. And... One of the one of the project proposals or an aspect of what he was proposing with his electrogravity experiments was he was proposing something that I find very interesting. I mean, he's anticipating Colonel Bearden, Tom Bearden, by three decades. Because what he was proposing was, okay, we've got these things, they're showing up in our skies. And how how did they know to show up at this time? Mm -hmm. And he, he speculated, he kind of implies that when nuclear weapons were being tested, that they, and I hope people latch on to what I say because this is very significant that Brown was on to this. He was kind of implying that a nuclear detonation sets off longitudinal waves in the medium of space time. And that would make them by most people's thinking, superluminal, in other words, faster than the speed of light, so that if you had a means of detecting these waves, you would be able to pinpoint who out there is letting off nuclear firecrackers. That was his first proposal. And then his second one was very interesting. He said, if we can find a way to control, and I'm paraphrasing him here, a way to control these longitudinal waves in the, in the fabric of space-time. Gravity waves is essentially what he was talking about. We could have a means of communication that would be both secret, because no one would think of longitudinal waves in the medium as a means of communication. It would be both secret and practically instantaneous. And then something interesting happens. Officially, his project is rejected by the government. So then where do you find him? Well, you find him off the coast of California for a brief period on Catalina Island right. doing tests of rocks. Rocks. And then after that, he shows up at guess where? 
Lockheed Martian mm. on their staff <laughs> doing what? We don't know. <laughs> wow, incredible. Yeah. So he's moving right through the Black Project. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and he has access to something. There's a story that his daughter tells in a, a book that she was putting out about him. And she tells that uh, they demonstrated this very interesting device he created. We don't get to know everything that it does, but it seems right. to have some control over space-time. But he calls it the audio fan, which doesn't sound, you know, it seems like, oh, you know, it's audio and it's a fan. What's the big deal? Mm -hmm. And yet some very unusual things happen in relation to it. After he demonstrates it, it disappears. Mm -hmm. But a weird thing happens, which is it shows up on kind of home shopping networks as what we were talking about. Was a little cube. Yeah. That little cube that's supposedly able to air condition a room. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's, you know what I think. I think that's straight out of the, his audio fan. Yeah. I think it's straight out of that. Yeah. Whatever it was about that technology that he demonstrated, they took it out immediately. Oh, yeah. It, you know, it, it was lost to history. But they saved that little salvageable piece for marketing purposes. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, well, this is the thing. I think, I think they're letting little things out. You know, yeah. just as, just as kind of beta test to see if number one, if there's a market, and number two, if they can control it, and number three, if they notice anybody's going to start connecting dots. Right. Yeah. Is he is uh, Thomas Townsend Brown a good candidate for a scientist who learned how to rework what we had found in relation to uh, alien tech? Let me put it this way. If, and, and you know me, I'm skeptical on the whole crash and retrieval narrative because we've had so many crashes and retrievals. Like I say, pretty soon we're going to have to start crashing our stuff on ET's homeworld so they can catch back up with us. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm skeptical of it. But if there were anyone who I would want on a team examining some of that stuff, regardless of where it comes from, it would be him. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it would be him. And I'll tell you something, one reason why. Brown, as you know, came out with a patent for a jet engine that would use ionized exhaust from a jet. The, ion, the negative ions would be propelled out the back of the jet, and then he talked about putting positive charge on the leading edge of the lift frame. Of an aircraft. So, in other words, what he's doing is he's increasing lift electromagnetically uh -huh. with this jet propulsion idea. Well, interestingly enough, the Germans came up with a very similar idea during the Second World War. You have to dig and scratch around for it before you find it, but uh -huh. it's there. And, I, you know, I don't think that the two are in communication with each other. I just think this is the sort of stuff that you think of if you're trying to think of really cool ways to get from here to there. Well, that's kind of an intermediate step. So he would be, if, if the Germans are doing things with the bell, if they're doing things with ram jets, you know, there's, there's uh, a good case to be made that the Germans broke the sound barrier during World War II, not Chuck Yeager mm -hmm. uh, a few years after it. 
Uh, and again, the guy involved with that was Walter Lippish. Where does he end up? Dayton, Ohio at Wright Patterson. <laughs> okay. Wow. So, so well, yeah. So, yeah, if you have something uh, Nazi crashing in the desert in New Mexico, as I think probably happened, and it's got a bunch of weird stuff that looks partly familiar and partly unfamiliar. Who do you bring in to look at? Well, Thomas Townsend Brown is right at the top of my list. Right. <laughs> he's, he's definitely one I'd want to bring in to have a look at that stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> this is so interesting because um, there's a whole period there where we got all kinds of different crafts in the sky in the mm -hmm. 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. There's a whole kind of like the culture is becoming aware of it. Mm -hmm. And you have tons of pictures and all the rest of it. And in the 70s and 80s, it's expanded. Mm -hmm. It seems like the type is different. And, it, it, you know, we're getting the next level of the story. What's interesting to me is now they're, they want to publicly say all that stuff is a threat. Over and over again, mm -hmm. back in the day, they used to say, whatever it is, it's not a national security threat. Mm -hmm. And that's why it sort of let them off the hook for what they needed to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. This is a change in tone. Well, there's a change in the public tone. Yeah. Um, I don't think that back in, in the post-war period, you know, through the 50s, early 60s, when you've got all of this UFO activity going on, that privately they could have come to any other conclusion that other than that this is a potential national security threat. Why? Well, one of the things I try and detail in... Uh, the first Covert Wars book series, was that you had numerous UFO reports at the time that were solid reports, you know, commercial airline pilots, military pilots, and so on, where UFOs were diving at civilian airliners and so on and forcing them to take emergency action and, you know, dive the plane or whatever. Uh, and this happens repeatedly. So in other words, that's that cannot be interpreted by the national security establishment in any other way than as a national security threat. If you're able to enter airspace with impunity and demonstrate a capability to interdict that airspace with impunity, you know, and then you have the famous Washington DC 1952 UFO flag. Right. That's that's clearly a national security issue because they're buzzing the White House, you know, <laughs> and waking <laughs> President Truman up, you know. So, and and we know what Truman's response was, shoot him down. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so 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 much for the public, they're not a threat narrative. Right, yeah. Because because Harry pretty pretty much settled that one. He was <laughs> but, ready to go. Yeah. yeah, he was ready to go, you know. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think I think that the public narrative has changed. And why is is the question? Fascinating. Uh, Eisenhower moves into the White House after Truman. Mm -hmm. He's there a solid eight years, sets up an entire national security strategy. Mm -hmm. Through the war and everything else, he's obviously aware of these things. Just oh, because yeah. They're seeing them. There's a, um, a bodyguard who comes forward years later who was there during his meeting with Churchill. Mm -hmm. He talks mm -hmm. about how both of them, this story came out only in the last five years or so. He talks about how both of them uh, discussed what to do about UFOs mm -hmm. and how to handle that and, um, you know, how to share information on it and all the rest.
Mm-hmm. So Eisenhower is kind of at a different level on the UFO thing than Truman coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he is. And let's not forget that Eisenhower, when he's uh, head of Shafe during World War II, he he has a team of military intelligence people gathering reports, you know, on Foo Fighters and things like this. And guess who the man is that he has in charge of that? Who? General Trudeau. Oh, right. And where's Trudeau 